You're listening to a sermon from Church of Christ at Treaty. For more resources, check out cctreaty.org. We are in Romans chapter 11. We'll go through verses 25 to 36. If you have the word in front of you, I'd love for you to follow along. Um, Many of you probably listened to Paul Harvey growing up. My dad listened to that like all the time, right? Um, You know, probably if you're familiar with that, then his segment's called The Rest of the Story. Um, These were segments, if you don't know what I'm talking about, that consisted of stories that he would present on the radio, and he would leave out intentionally little-known facts. Often, he would leave out key elements, including like who the story was actually about. And then, at the end, the segment would end with the famous tagline, and let's, can we say it together? Someone's, John, start us off. How did it start off, the tagline at the end? And that's... The rest of the story, right? And so I, I really enjoyed those stories um, and trying to anticipate what the missing details were or who it was about. But there was one particular story that I remember him talking about, and it was a Dutchman who was named Willem who wanted to be a minister. And in this segment, he was talking about that in the spring of 1879, there was a guy named Willem, and his passion brought him to the coal fields of southern Belgium. Uh, and it was there that his selflessness captured the respect of the miners, his desire to give of himself to others. These miners, the coal miners and their families, were really drawn to that. And there was a, a mine disaster. Um, I was going to say like a minor disaster, you know, like make a joke, but I was told it wasn't really that funny. Um, but there was a mine disaster, and a lot of people got injured in the village, and there was no one. Uh, outside of Willem that fought harder uh, to help these people, clear out the rubble and help bury the dead, to help uh, the sick people to get made well. And the villagers kept coming back to this guy, and he would tell them the story of Jesus, that he would actually preach to these people as they would visit him, and they were drawn to him. And later on, there were some uh, local church officials who noticed that... um, they visited him, and they found that he was living in, like, basically shambles. He was living in this tiny hut. He would wear clothes that were tattered and worn. And when they asked him what he did with all this money that he was making, he told them that he was giving it all away to the miners and their families. Well, they didn't really believe him. They thought that he was lying and and that he was misusing his money and his funds and being sneaky about it. And so they actually told him uh, that he wasn't allowed to preach God's word to the people. They dismissed him from his church position. And he was uh, devastated, uh, Paul Harvey says, that uh, he actually believed that God had forgotten him. Um, That in his desire to be selfless to these people and to preach the word, that when he was asked to never do it again, he had this feeling of being forgotten. There was a later, uh, years later, an afternoon where he noticed a miner who was older and he was bending over trying to pick up a sack of coal that he was having trouble with. And it was then that he felt this desperation for this man and his heart sort of was reinvigorated for these people. And so he fumbled in his pocket, he pulled out an envelope that he had in his pocket and he began to draw a picture of this old man trying to pick up the sack of coal and it really moved his heart. And it was that day that he began to make it his mission to capture the images of these people that he loved, not just the torment, 
but the triumphs and the dignity of these people uh, in the coal mine fields that he had grown to fall in love with. The people that, that he wasn't allowed to teach anymore. The very people that he wasn't allowed to share God with, he was able to touch through his art. And in this process, they immortalized him and he did the same for them. And this preacher who wasn't allowed to preach anymore became an artist that we come to know today as Vincent Willem Van Gogh. And now you know the rest of the story. This story, as I recalled it being told on the radio, reminds me of some people that were rejected and had this idea and a sense of feeling forgotten. And I'm talking about the people Paul are going to talk about today, the people of Israel. The people that we call and we know in God's word as God's chosen people. God had given these people promises. God had given them promises and blessings guaranteed from Abraham on. But when Jesus came, they refused to believe in Christ. And because of this rejection, God took his message to the Gentiles. And so Paul is asking, and the people are asking Paul, what is uh, God going to do with the people who have seemed to have been forgotten, the nation of Israel. Will God cast them away? Will God fail to keep His promises? That's the way it looks, unless we know what? The rest of the story. And so we touched on this a little last week, but we're going to close this idea today um, by looking at Paul revealing that this idea that he says, in God's word, all of Israel will be saved. Israel, the rejected nation, the seemingly forgotten nation that God's chosen people, Paul says, will be restored to their place of blessing, to their place of privilege as the people of God. That's the rest of the story. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 25. And 27 through 27, Paul says this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. A lot of these passages, sometimes we tend to just go through real quickly, and we miss the importance and the significance of some of these incredible statements that Paul talks about this mystery, uh, that we shouldn't be conceited, that Israel has hardened their heart in part um, until a, a, a certain amount of Gentiles has come in, so it's a hardening that happens until something else happens. As we look back at the illustration from last week when Paul talked about the olive tree and the branches, we see that Paul is hopeful in this text that Israel is going to be grafted back in. There's a mystery that Paul describes uh, of this. It's a technical term that Paul uses in other parts of the Bible when he talks about the mysteries of God. What he's talking about are things that God has seemingly hidden from us, but that he reveals through his word or through God's people that are now disclosed. Now that we know the rest of the story, we can know how it takes place to some degree. The place of Israel in God's plan was a mystery. These people didn't understand it, meaning they didn't know exactly how it would happen. How was Israel God's chosen people? How would they come back to him when they had rejected Jesus? And we are told that Jesus is the only way, then how is it possible that they still might come back? 
And so we needed, and Paul knew this, God to reveal to us how this might happen. There's three little clauses, um, phrases in the text that we just read that are really important. The first one is that Israel has experienced a hardening in part. The nation of Israel has hardened themselves to the gospel in part. And so we got to kind of explore what that means. Um, we see also that he says, until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Right? So if we're studying this text, you might say, well, what's the full number of Gentiles? Right? Um, these are questions that I ask myself as I look at this text. He says, until the full number has come in. And then he concludes with this clause, and so all Israel will be saved. We have to look at that. What does that mean? Um, and although we may not be able to answer all of these questions fully, there are a lot of things that we can get from this text um, one of these things is that the hardening of the Jew's heart, meaning it's, it's partial. We've already seen Paul talk last week about the remnant, that not everybody had hardened themselves to Jesus, but a large percentage of them had. Um, we saw that some of the Jews had already turned to Jesus, and so the hardening is in part. right? So we can't just say that every Israelite has hardened their hearts, because that's not true. And Paul points that out, that it was an in part hardening. The second thing about this hardening has to do with the fact that it's temporary. We talked a little bit about that last week. That it will come to an end, according to Paul, when the full number of Gentiles comes in. And I don't, uh, this is a, an interesting message because I don't have all the answers to this, right? Like, I don't know what the number is. I don't know what the, the, the idea that Paul was trying to get exactly is. But he says that until a certain number, until a certain thing happens with the Gentiles, that there's a partial hardening that happens. And it's a mystery. I don't know, is he talking a specific number? Or is he just talking generally until God decides that that's the right amount? But the biggest question about the meaning of this passage, and we'll look at this today, is what does Paul mean when he says, all Israel will be saved. Think about that for a second. When you read that, what, is, what, is, what, do you, what comes to mind? Do you instantly go to the nation of Israel? Do you go to the spiritual Israel? Do you go, do you go to the geographical location of Israel? What do you think when Paul initially says, all of Israel will be saved? Now, this is a debate that we're not going to have, but this is a debate that people have talked about for a long time. What did Paul mean when he said all of Israel will be saved? I want to share the three most common beliefs, um, and I want to share them carefully because I don't want to necessarily say this is exactly what you have to believe. But I think that God's word was meant for us to explore and discover and to learn, and so I would implore that we try our best to ask God to teach us what this means for us. But the three uh, most common views are these. The first is this. When Paul says all of Israel, he's referring to the entire church. Okay? All of the church, all of the Christians, all spiritual Israel, which would be the Jews and the Gentiles. So basically there's the, the, the view that when Paul says all of Israel will be saved, he's referring to basically we would call every single Christian. Every single person that puts their faith in Jesus that, that all of Israel, that's what Paul means there, is what that view believes. There's also the second view that all of Israel refers to the spiritual Israel, meaning the elect Jews that are also nationally from Israel. 
So all of the Jews who have turned, the remnant that we talked about last week, when Paul says all of Israel will be saved, he's referring to all of the Jews who have put their faith in Jesus, and all Jews who put their faith in Jesus will be saved. And then the third one is that all of Israel refers totally to the nation of Israel, meaning every single Jew will be saved. Um, now, I think, I think most of you can figure out probably what I believe, if you've spent any amount of time with me, um, but I do not believe that this passage refers to the totality as a nation. Like, I do not uh, personally believe that every single Jewish person is going to be saved. I do not believe that. But I do think um, I could see how it does reference both Jew and Gentile Christians, because we believe that, right? Any Jew and any Gentile who has put their faith in Jesus and accepted Christ as Lord and been baptized and confessed him as king will be saved. We believe that. So I could see that Paul saying that, and that would make sense to me. I also think that there is room for somebody to disagree with me and say, no, I think Paul just means right there specifically the spiritual Jews, the ones who have turned to Jesus who are Jewish by nationality, because I also believe that. Right? We also see in Scripture where anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus can be saved. Right? So a former Buddhist, a Jew, a former Muslim, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus and gives their life to him will be saved. And so I believe that those first two views could be what Paul is saying. But the point that he's making is more than anything, whether we get hung up on is it all the Jews and the Gentiles, is he just referring to the Jewish Christians the point that Paul really wants us to get is that there is a future for the Jews in the plan of salvation. And that is the part that we cannot get away from. That God's chosen people have a place in salvation. That it's for them. That regardless of how God brings it about, the hardening that Paul refers to, that's partial, that will only last until all of the Jews come in, it will lessen and many more Jewish people will believe in Jesus and be saved. Praise God. Amen? I mean, that is good news. I hope that it's true to some degree for our Muslim friends, right? I hope that some of our Muslims are going to not have a hardened heart any longer and they're going to turn from their sin and give their lives to Jesus. I hope that's true for them as well. And so uh, Paul is reminding us, no matter how it happens, we don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but Jews are going to, to turn their heart to Jesus and be saved. Paul quotes Isaiah 59. If you look at the passage that we read, he's quoting Isaiah 59, Isaiah 27, if you want to go back and look at that later. Um, but Paul is identifying a deliverer. He says, the deliverer will come from Zion. Who's he talking about? Jesus, right? Paul is referring to a deliverer that came for both Jews and the Gentiles. His name is Jesus. And what we know is this is the covenant of the deliverer. He says in verse 27, when I take away their sins. That's the gospel. That Jesus came to take away our sins. Let's pick up in verse 28 to 32 as we move on. As far as the gospel is concerned, Paul says, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his calls are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. 
So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. In this passage, there's a they and a you language that Paul is using. The they is he's referring to the Israelites and the you he's referring to the Gentiles. Israel's failure to accept the gospel had cut them off from God's salvation, thus the language that Paul uses, that they had become enemies to God. When we live and we're stuck in our sin and when we reject the message of Jesus, we become enemies of God, and that's what he was referring to Israel. The hostility or the enmity may be Israel towards God. It it may also be God towards Israel, but let us not uh, confuse the fact that it does go both ways. That when we reject Jesus, he then has no choice but to reject us, right? Because of our hardening of the heart that Paul talks about. The refusal of Israel to believe, the refusal uh, of them to accept Christ hardened them off. It did not mean that God was done with them. And that's good news, not just for Jews, but for us. That just because our kids, just because our friends, just because our family have hardened their hearts to the gospel, it does not mean that he's done. Don't stop praying. Don't give up. That's not the end of the story, right? And my hope and my prayer is that when we read the stories, when Paul Harvey tells the story about your kid, that the rest of the story includes coming to Christ. Paul reminds us that God loves Israel because of the patriarchs, going back to Abraham, that God's gifts and his blessings that he gave to them are irrevocable. God's love never changes despite how he responds to them. His blessings, his rewards are conditional, but his love and his call are not. The blessings and the rewards that we get in this life are often based on our decisions and our consequences, but whether or not he loves us and whether or not he has called us, are not irrevo- or they are. They're irrevocable. It cannot be taken away. God loves you, he calls you, and he has a purpose for each and every one of you. The Gentiles Paul had talked about were in obedience, or I'm sorry, they were in disobedience, and so God had mercy on them. But now the Israelites, Paul says, has fallen into that disobedience, which then when that happened, then the Gentiles were able to see mercy because of the hardening of the Israelites. But that eventually, as Paul says, hopefully will lead to more and more of the mercy of God being poured out on the nation of Israel and the Jews. It's an equal treatment. It's an equal footing. When we come to the cross, we're all the same. Those who hardened our hearts towards God and reject him have become enemies and those who have accepted him have found mercy and grace at the cross of Jesus. We're reminded of Paul's writing early in chapter 1 way back a few weeks ago when Paul reminds us that God hands us over to the sinful nature, right? That, that there's this handing over the consequences of our sins that God cannot be and exist in the presence of our sin and so because of our fleshly sinful nature we're handed over God has sentenced us, in that sense, both Jew and Gentile, doesn't matter who, to condemnation because of our sin, because God can't be in the place of it, that we are condemned and judged because of our sin. But praise God, there's no condemnation for those who are in who? Jesus. There's no height or depth, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. And God does this 
so that it's clear to us that we're sinners, that you're a sinner, that I'm a sinner, and we're all sinners, and the only escape is through God's mercy and the gift of Jesus. God's ultimate desire is not for you to stay condemned or for me to stay condemned or for me to be hardened and separate and enemy. His ultimate plan and desire is for my salvation and for yours. He wants to offer mercy to anyone who would accept it. And so Paul gets to this conclusion in this text where he's thinking about God and how God called the nation of Israel and how they rejected him and how God then includes the Gentiles, how we can be made in the family of God and how Israel can still be regrafted back in, that God wants to offer mercy to everybody. And, and this causes Paul to be compelled to praise God. And this should be cause for us to praise God, amen? That he wants us to know that in, in the middle of the chaos of everything going on in our world and in the world back then with all of the rejection, with the nations rejecting themselves uh, and, and turning away from God and some people turning towards God, that his ultimate goal is for your salvation and through all of it, God will get the glory. It's hard to imagine sometimes when we turn on the TV that God could possibly receive any glory or that he's sitting on his throne somewhere proud of his people. But I can assure you, because God's word is true from Genesis to Revelation, that God knows the rest of the story and it's all about him and he will get all the glory. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We don't have to bow right now, but we will one day and I hope that you're ready. Because Jesus came for you because he loves you. Let's read this last part. It's called the doxology, which is why we sung it today, and it's a little bit different. But it's this idea that while we reject God, while we turn from God, while we have pride and we think we're better than other people and we compare ourselves like the Gentiles did with the Jews and, and we fight and we argue and we all of this, it all should cause us to praise his name. And so Paul closes chapter 11 with these four verses that, that my Bible heads as a doxology, which is simply a declaration of praise. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. Let me say that one more time. For, for him, from Him, through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Say it with me. Amen. Amen. Like, it is all, listen my friends, it is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Paul begins by declaring that God's ways are unsearchable and untraceable. Anybody ever felt that before? Like, you sit here and you try to think about what is God doing? Like, what? what I, this makes no sense. I can't see it. I can't trace it. I can't even figure it out. It's kind of like uh, those dots, uh, things we used to do on car trips before everybody had five phones and tablets. But like, you'd make those uh, pictures that were like one to two to three to four, and you'd kind of try to guess what it was. Like, oh, maybe that's a rhinoceros, and then it was like a flower, right? Because you can't see 
until you know, right, the rest of the story. So it, it, all of the days of our lives were numbered. It's like day one, day two, day three, and, it, and it's unsearchable. We can't see exactly what God's doing in our lives. It's untraceable, Paul says. But Paul isn't praising God because he has the answers, right? He's not praising God because it's been revealed to him. He's praising God because he's God. Paul's declaring that God's dealing with the mankind. God's dealing with the nation of Israel is beyond his comprehension. And he's God. He can do whatever he wants. And so he just chose to praise him instead of trying to figure him out. We're never going to understand everything in this life, but we can be assured that his knowledge, because God's word says it, is perfect, and his knowledge is true. His ways are wise, and for that enough reason alone, we can praise the Lord. Amen? Like, I, I'm just like at a place of going, man, I don't, I, I don't have any reason this week that, that just says you have to praise God. But I hold my kids. I spend time with my family. I spend time in the Word. I spend time with my church family. I go and, and do life with people, and I just see that it doesn't make sense. It's untraceable. I don't know what God's trying to do in the middle of all this, but I just have decided like Paul this week, I'm just going to praise him. I'm just going to praise him because I don't know what he's trying to do with our nation. I don't know what he's trying to do with our world. I don't, frankly, even know what he's trying to do with me today. So instead of trying to figure it out, I'm just going to praise the Lord who's with me. Like, there's enough reasons. Like, we, we are trying to make songs about it, right? 10,000 reasons, right? Like, I've got enough of a reason to praise the Lord because he sent Jesus for me. That's all I need. Paul declares God's greatness and he asks three rhetorical questions. And I think they're hilarious questions. Um, to remind us of how far above us God actually is. He says, first of all, who can know the mind of the Lord? Who can know the mind of the Lord, right? Like, I can't even figure out my own mind, right? I can't even figure out what my son is thinking half the time, right? I, I don't know. I can't figure it out. So who... Am I to think that I could figure out the mind of God? And that's what Paul says. Who could know? Who has known the mind of the Lord? He's reinforcing this idea that we can't fathom the mind of God and his ways. He's God. The second question he asks, uh, I think they just get better. Who has been his counselor? Right? It's like, uh, oh, hey, God, are you here for counseling? <laughs> right? Like, I just have this image of like, you know, hey, step on into the pastor's office, God. Let me help you out here. Um, the, the question reminds us that, that God is so much greater than us, we have no right to give him counsel, yet I do it all the time. You and I do it all the time. Think, like, listen to yourself sometimes when you pray. It's, it's as if God needs our advice on how to fix things, right? Like, God, you know, it's an election year. Oh, I almost forgot, right? We really need someone that loves the Lord in Washington. Oh, that, yeah, okay, let's, let's consider that, right? I mean, uh, and I know, like, I'm being facetious about it, and God wants us to ask for things, and he wants us to pray, but sometimes we think that we can give God advice in our prayers. Like, that we can say, hey, this would be the way to do it, if I was you, this is what I would do, and that he's probably taking notes, right? Um, but I've looked at situations before and told God what, what I thought he'd do. I've even been as foolish to try to make deals with God. Maybe you've never done that, right? Where you say, like, God, if, if I get an A on this test, I will 
praise you like nothing else this week, right? Like, I'll go to five Bible studies, and I'll tell everybody in my class about Jesus if I can get an A on this test, right? Uh, If you do this, I'll do this. We sort of negotiate. But Paul says, who has been God's counselor? Not just who knows his mind, who hasn't figured out, but who in the room is smart enough to tell him and be his advisor? And then the final question that Paul says here is, who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? Like, that's pretty funny, right? <laughs> like, you know, we, we sometimes, let's be honest, we're like proud. I remember when I wasn't giving financially to any church. I was kind of young in my faith, and frankly, I just made a lot of excuses. Like, oh, I don't give money, but I give time, you know, or like I would make these excuses, um, and then I was really had this sense of pride when my wife and I had been married for a few years and we're like, no, we're just going to trust God and we're going to do it. And I was like, yeah, we're, now we're giving 10%. We're tithing. And it's like so one of my friends reminded me one time, he's like, you know it's actually all his, right? I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> right? So it's like I'm just giving him 10% that's already his, and I'm giving him 10%. Right, like, but I like had this sense of pride that I was like, oh yeah, look at me, God, I'm giving back. You should bless my family because I'm tithing. I'm, I'm being generous. And we, we do. We obey God and we do what he asks. But it's this idea that who can give to God that they should be repaid for all they've done? And we have this mistaken idea that we do so much for him. Like that if we, if we weren't here, how would he get all of this stuff done? And it doesn't work that way. We do not put God under obligation to do anything for us. There's nothing that any of us can do that will ever compare. I think we agree with this, with what he's done for us. Amen? And so this funny idea that Paul says, who has given to God in such a way that he should give back to them? But Paul concludes by affirming the supremacy of God, that he's our source It's for him, by him, through him. He's our sustainer. All things are of God. He's the source. He's our maker. All things are through him. He's the one that upholds us. He sustains us. He rules and he directs. Has anybody been sustained during this season where you just don't know how you made it, but the Lord has sustained you? Amen? He's upheld you in a lot of ways. He's gotten you through. He's directed you. He's the reason you exist. He's the reason, he's the means to our ends. All things are for him, to bring him glory forever and ever. And even if we don't understand it, everything is about him. It's all about him. That all of the news stories, all of the victories, all of our successes are ultimately intended to bring glory to God. So I want to close with a few thoughts that I think help us as we look at the nation of Israel. And no matter what you believe, about whether God is going to actually restore the geographical location of Israel, or if, if he just is referring to the, the Jews who have turned to Jesus, or if Paul was referring to all Jews and Gentiles who had claimed Christ as king. Um, but what we know is that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, who acts out and confesses him as Lord, and is faithful, who's been baptized, who's repented of their sin, who has lived a life of obedience, will find salvation in no one other than Jesus. Amen? And so it doesn't matter our nationality. But here are the things that I wanted to close with. First of all, I want to clarify uh, a stance on Israel. And again, this is one of those topics that like, you might have slight disagreement, and it's okay. okay? This is not like a, a thing that we fight about, or we walk out here and go, man, Ryan's view of Israel is dumb, right? 
it might be. Um, but my view of Jesus is right, whether you like it or not. Um, uh, anyway, squirrel. While I do believe personally that Paul is teaching that Jews will turn to Jesus, I don't believe that he personally, I do not believe that he's speaking to the actual geographical location. I believe personally that Paul is speaking of spiritual Jews, those who give their lives to Christ and the Gentiles who do it as well, that all of Israel will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who has put their hope in Jesus will find hope in him. Paul uh, predicts, I believe what he predicts has more to do with a spiritual revival than a national revival. Um, I don't see Paul talking about Israel or Palestine in such a way that I think political restitution or re- reconstitution is, is what I, I personally don't think that, that that's what Paul's talking about. Um, I believe his focus is on spiritual salvation of the Jews. The second thing is I want to remind us that Paul's concern for us, for the Gentiles in this letter, if we want to look specifically at the context, his concern was that the largely Gentile church that existed then, which is the way the churches are now, right? We are largely um, not Jewish in our nationality here, um, largely Gentile. Paul was combating the tendency of us to think more of ourselves because God has grafted us into his family and to think less of them. And you might say, well, I don't really think less of them, but I know growing up I heard lots of people blame the Jews for killing Jesus, right? When really it was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross as much as theirs. And that I have the same ability as the Jews to reject Jesus. Don't I? I I have the same choice that they have to reject the Messiah. And so there is no superiority to my belief because I am not Jewish as the Gentiles were treating them in that context. And so we want to be clear um, that this is not replacement theology. I don't believe that the Christians today replaced Israel as God's church. I believe that anyone who has given their lives to Christ is the church. And it doesn't matter your nationality. Um, But anti-Semitism does continue to be a thing in our world. Um, There are Jewish uh, synagogues that are always, you know, people are performing acts of terrorism and all of that. But the church should be the safest place for anyone to explore the gospel of Jesus. And my hope um, would be that while Israel is the root, that the church, um, the modern church would be a place where anybody felt safe to come and explore their hope in Jesus. Whether they were Jewish or Gentile, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, um, I, my hope, and I believe Paul's hope for the church of Jesus was that it was a place that would, without embarrassment without shame would preach the truth of the gospel of Jesus as found in the Bible, the infallible word of God, but we would be a place that anybody could come and explore that. All nations, all ethnicities, all descents should be welcome in the church of Jesus to give their lives to him. We are to be one in Christ, right? That doesn't mean we're unified on every single thing, but we are called to be one in Christ. That leaves no place for us to have pride or prejudice for any other nationality. Um, also want to remind us that there is actually only one way to be saved. That might be countercultural right now, um, but there is, in fact, according to God's word, only one way to be saved, um, and that is through Jesus Christ. Um, it is through belief. It is through acceptance, repentance, meaning that we turn from our sin. It's through baptism for the forgiveness of sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then it's a continuation of obedience falling down and getting back up, right? Partial hardening. It's getting up every single day and dying to ourselves 
and surrendering ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's His blood alone that washes us whiter than snow. But I want to acknowledge that universalism has a long history, and universalism exists in many American churches, right? We've seen in the last several weeks um, examples of people who have supposed ordinations and calls from God that say things that go against his word. Um, But universalism is a thing, and we need to be aware of it. It's been around since the third century, creeping into the church, and many churches advocate for it. Uh, Universalism is basically this idea that different ideas and directions are okay. Um, They'll say things like, all people will eventually be saved because God is love, so he has to save everybody. Um, They'll say things like, all paths, all roads, all directions to God are equally effective. Um, It's the pluralism of the world and the day that we live in, where voices of tolerance um, threaten us and tell us and preach to everyone in the culture to break down our convictions that go against God's word. Um, But the Bible is uh, exclusive. The gospel is exclusive. Christ is the only way. But he's inclusive because he came for everyone. Um, And so we cannot allow universalism to creep into our thoughts. There is one way, and his name is Jesus. Um, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't write the rules. I'm just reading them. Uh, when Paul concluded that all of Israel will be saved, he was not suggesting that there would be salvation for any Israelite apart from Jesus. I want to be clear about that, right? When Paul was declaring that all of Israel would be saved, it included Christ. John 14, 6. I want to put the burden of proof uh, on you because this is the word of Christ, my King. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are the words of our Savior who died on the cross for our sins that we might have life eternal with Him. Paul is not trying to suggest that there's a special way aside from Jesus to be saved. In fact, Paul spends the whole book of Romans describing the gospel through salvation of Jesus, that it's offered to Jew and Gentile alone. The heart of the gospel is Jesus on the cross. Amen? That's the heart of the gospel, that he died and rose for all mankind, that no one could be saved apart from this good news and apart from faith in Jesus. And if we think that we can afford a special way for the Jews and a special way for the Muslims and a special way for the Hindus, it's not possible. It goes against what God says. And many people today have a problem with the many ways leading to God. And let me tell you something, God has a problem with that as well because it's not true. I want to remind us also that Jesus is the only way to be saved, but everything in our life should turn us and remind us to praise him, to be reminded of the greatness of God, that in the end, our lives and everything we do is about God. He's perfect. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. Everything is from him. Everything is through him. Everything is to him. Come on, he is worthy of glory and honor. If we ever think that God has forgotten us, if we ever think that God has mistreated us, just remember the cross and how much he loves you. And if you ever think that you have wandered too far from God, that you can't turn and repent, remember the nation of Israel. That God said, that Paul said, that when the Gentiles had come in, that they would turn their hearts to God. And let's praise him for the plan of redemption and salvation. Let's bow before Jesus in humility and call upon the grace of God that he offers through Jesus Christ so that you and I, my friends, can experience the rest 
of the story. God is writing your story, and he's not finished with you yet. And if you have not given your lives to him, I'm telling you, that's the best part of the story. He has a plan and a purpose for you. He died for you, and he came to save you. Would you believe and accept and confess his name and be baptized in the water to be forgiven, to receive his spirit inside of you so that you can be empowered to live and change the world? Come on, we need it. We need change. We need Jesus in this world. We don't need more or better politicians. We need the hope of Jesus. We need to stop worrying about what the adjective is before our name. We're being terrible people. We're being rude and hateful and violent. We need the hope of Jesus. We need to love God and love our neighbors. Come on, church. It's time to go and love the world with the love of Jesus. He died for you because he loves you. He's the only way. He's the only option that anyone has. We have to go and tell everybody.